With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mentzel aka Menas, and joining me for this week's show let me start off with senior cricket writer for aap welcome back to the show rob forsyth how are you i'm not sure that i'm senior i'm not not that old Menas, but thank you uh thank you for having me <laughs> no good. worries well you know it's a difference between you and bales you're the senior cricket writer so we've, we've gone up the ladder and the other panelists this week it's a it's an all journalist panel this week except me we've got James Buckley cricket writer and sports writer for the Sydney Morning Herald how are you James very well man thank you g'day mate g'day rob good to be here mate good to be back yeah i'm glad we've got you you're heading off i think on friday to the women's world cup so this is a little bit of a pre podcast for your big trip over there are you excited Absolutely, yeah. Really looking forward to getting over there. I'll be there from uh, from round three onwards. The girls play New Zealand uh, yeah, so on you... Sunday, yeah. So I'll be there for that game and then whatever happens after that, hopefully culminating in a final at Lords. Great, yeah. We're losing all the panellists to, to England now to go and cover the Women's World Cup. So let's start with the Women's World Cup. We're going we're gonna to cover all the cricket news because we've got two journos here. They can give us the inside takes on all the headlines of the week. We've got read and react. We've got the headlines. We're going to end the show with Can't Let It Go. But let's start with the Women's World Cup because it got off to the absolute perfect start for me with England being thrashed in the opener by India and then Australia smashing the West Indies in their opening game. I must admit, I took as much joy seeing the English women's team lose as I do seeing the English men's team. What about you guys? Shades of the Rugby World Cup with, uh, with the home nation losing on home soil to open the tournament. Bit of an upset there to India. Just I, like I every certainly... World Cup that England competes in. <laughs> no, I certainly enjoyed that, Menas. But uh, like you mentioned last night, the Aussie girls, almost a flawless start. A big hundred there by Nicole Bolton opening the innings. Just, just steady the whole way through. Carried a bat. Very well played. And I think probably ominous signs for a tournament that they're definitely expected to win. 
think it's good to see, you know, that opening result also from the, the India point of view. Just, um, you know, you want to see lots of teams competitive in women's cricket for too long. It was sort of England, Australia and New Zealand and, you know, mostly Australia. But it's great to see, see India knocking off the palms on, on many levels. Yeah, and I think as well the development of the women's game in India has been a little bit slower and maybe that's a cultural thing. And now we're seeing a, a victory like that and performances like uh, they put in will boost the profile in their country. And I think the marketing material in India has changed now that you have the captain alongside Virat Kohli. So we're slowly seeing um, a rise in women's cricket in India, which is going to benefit the whole game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a bit of chat about the, the women's IPL and how great would it be for that to, to happen, um, I suppose, soon after this tournament, the next couple of years. I think you'd expect that within maybe the short to medium term, I guess over the next decade perhaps, that India, the women's Indian team, would rise to be the next powerhouse or certainly to be a genuine challenger to Australia, I think, on that front. Well, if there's any indication of what the men's team have done in the last 20 years, then I guess they would follow suit. Now let's focus on the Australian performance in this first game. So they played um, the West Indies at Taunton in Somerset and uh, beautiful-looking ground, actually, and... There was some interesting team selection from the Australians. And I guess, James, I'll start with you. But I thought when they picked Ash Gardner, the Sydney Sixers, sort of opening batsman and um, or middle-order batsman and spinner, and they batted her at nine, that it was a bit of a wasted position. Instead of Gardner at nine, I would have liked to have seen a fast bowler like Sarah Ailey or Belinda Vakawira in that position to give Meg Lanny more options with the ball. I just think our batting so strong. Do you need a top-order batsman coming in at nine? That's a that's a good point, and I looked upon that selection and sort of had a similar thought train. But I think what what Matthew and what the coach is doing, I mean, it's only the first game. It's a game they are expected to win, and he's picked a very spin heavy bowling attack, which has served him quite well over the last twelve months. I don't necessarily think he's going to persist with that, with that throughout the entire tournament. But I remember speaking to him in the lead up, and he tends to think that. Maybe the ball's not going to seem around as much as, as people would assume, given that they're playing in England. You know, very, very nice weather over there at the moment. Good summer conditions for cricket. And like I say, the spin bowling has worked well for them over the last 12 months. So perhaps at this stage it's a matter of just just fine-tuning that bowling attack. They, they bat so deep, the Aussies, which you would notice Elisa Healy was due to come in at number seven, and there's no room for Rachel Haynes at this stage. So I think, I think he can probably afford to do that. However, when they when they go up against the likes of uh, New Zealand or England, New Zealand in particular, I think, they're going to probably need that extra strike bowler down there, which is where you might see a Belinda come in or a Sarah Ailey, perhaps. There was some controversy to start off the match at the toss when Stephanie Taylor called correctly and told Meg Lanning they will bat. And then she goes to do the TV interview. She says, oh, we'll bat. And then she says, oh, no, sorry, we'll bowl. And so obviously the West Indies captain has got her, her instructions wrong either from the coach and uh, made the wrong call. Then after the toss was com- after the, the toss ceremony was done, the match referee stepped in and said, look, to the West Indies captain, look, you said you wanted to bat first. You have to do that. You can't change your mind. That, that was really weird. I've never seen that before. I feel for uh, Stefani Taylor being an indecisive person. I mean, how many times have you guys been at a restaurant, you know, soup, salad, soup, salad, soup, salad. <laughs> and, you know, you can be t- it's tough on the spot. Yeah, the um, poor girl, she looked so upset. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. All jokes aside, I mean, it is a, 
it was sort of you saw that Meg wasn't um, wasn't particularly thrilled with the series of events, and um, yeah, I suppose it's just a, a very unfortunate mix-up, isn't it? Rob, just uh, just go the stake next time, mate. <laughs> I, think yeah, cool. but I think they were obviously both captains were nervous and excited about their campaign beginning so there was a little bit of that from both sides obviously in her making the wrong Taylor making the wrong call and then landing saying well look you said you were going to bat twice mm. so I mean you have to stick to that so anyway strange strange thing and I guess didn't get anybody from the West Indies from there they were all out for 204 in 47.5 overs Elise Perry took three for 47 in her return to bowling for the Southern Stars. Sorry, I should say the Australian women's cricket team. I just got used to the Southern Stars and now they've changed it. Anyway, so Perry went for over five and over, but I thought she looked pretty good in her return to bowling. She's a very handy one uh, to have. I mean, she's as we know, she's already scored a century in uh, one of the warm-up games leading into this tournament. Still one of the more destructive quick bowlers in women's cricket and more than happy to offer both strings. I mean, she comes out, she bats, uh, I think, at number four. She came in last night. She's happy to open the bowling, happy to bowl, for, happy to bowl first change, second change, wherever she's needed. And she comes in and she bowls with genuine pace that I think still probably troubles a lot of these international girls that aren't quite used to what she can offer. She's a devastating cricketer and she's going to have a fantastic World Cup. Yeah, she has struggled with the ball, though, right throughout the summer. She took a long break. She didn't bowl much for the Sixers. Uh, she got a bit of tap in the early games of the Sixers. So I think there's a little bit of a confidence issue with her bowling at the moment. I just wonder whether she's really getting through the crease. If you watch her, she doesn't quite have the momentum through the crease she maybe had a couple of years ago. So I think as this tournament gets on, hopefully she can get back in the groove. That's a fair point. But, I mean, you've got to remember she's battled a few injuries over the last six months or so. Uh, and and she's, she's kind of got this thing where she just sort of stops before she gets into the last part of her action. If you watch it, this is the coach coming out of me. You watch her stop, the momentum stops, and then she gets into her action again. So I think maybe that's why she's not getting through the crease. Yeah, that's a fair observation. And I mean, come to the Thanks, end, but James. I, think, I think you're probably right there because <laughs> I can just I know what you mean when you when you watch a, an action of a bowl. I mean, it didn't it didn't seem to uh, affect her too much last night. But like we say, when, when they go up against some of the stronger teams, might be one to watch. Mm. The other one that did really well was leg spinner Kristen Beams. She took two for 30. Uh, good performance by her. And then there was a, a missed run out. I don't know if you guys saw this, but early on in the West Indies innings, uh, the umpire gave a run out, not out, and the batsman was out by a long way. And initially I thought, well, they should go to the re- replay. But then I remembered that, They've only got referrals in 10 of the televised games. So, obviously, it was the game we were watching last night was televised on Australian cable TV, but they didn't have the facilities to use DRS. That's a strange one. Very, very strange. Uh, it's the year 2017, and, you know, you could see clearly on the replay that it was out. I can't really understand uh, what's going on there. Is it is it the fact that when the games are being streamed internationally, they don't have the facilities? It's just a funny one. I mean, yeah, I mean, particularly that was pretty clear-cut. It's not like it was something close where you needed a really close sort of high-tech camera to zoom in and and work it out. So they are using referrals in 10 of the games, but just not that one last night. So that cost Australia a wicket, but not the game. So chasing 205 for victory, Australia cruised there on the back of our left-handed opening batting pair of Mooney and Bolton putting on a 171 Beth Mooney made 70 and Nicole Bolton made a polished 107 not out her third one day international century 
I thought those two just played so well. And actually, I mean, straight away, they're going to top of the West Indies bowling attack and never let up. So another good example of how strong this batting lineup is. I mean, Beth Mooney's actually a wicketkeeper. And part of the reason I think she was selected was to maybe put a bit of pressure on Elisa Healy. But she's that good that she's forced away into that top six, into that, into that opening batting role, and not really had to rely on her wicketkeeping. The strength of this batting lineup cannot be questioned. We've already had uh, Nicole overnight's made 100. Elise Perry, Elise Villani in the warm-up games have made centuries. Meg Lanning's yet to fire a shot, and she's by far and away the best batter in the world. And you've still got Alex Blackwell, who's scored nearly 4,000 runs at ODI level. I mean, they're, they're going to be very, very hard to beat. Really strong. And to, to have your openers inform Mooney and Bolton, great start to the tournament. I know, James, you spoke to Alyssa Healy and Meg Lanning in the lead-up to the the tournament, I mean, this group just seems like such a relaxed, confident group going into this tournament. It's just hard to see them losing. I asked Elisa about having Beth in the squad and if that, I guess, applies any extra pressure to her position. And she made a good point to me. She said that over the last couple of years, she feels like she's she's cruised along a bit at New South Wales level and maybe even Australian level. There's been no one really behind her to challenge her. So the gloves have always been hers. Granted, she's batted very well. But I just got the feeling that um, that maybe she was she was looking to take another step at this World Cup. Meg Lanning said to me that for all that's gone before, which is six World Cup wins, it doesn't really mean anything now at this stage. It's a much stronger tournament this time round. It's a different format, and it's up to her girls to write their own page of history. Really, they can't they can't look back at what's gone before and think that they've got something of a divine right or anything like that to be in the final. They've got to put in the work and they're prepared to do that. So there's plenty of motivation for this team despite the heavy favourite tag that they're carrying. I think um, losing last year's World T20 as well might have been a a bit of a spark if ever there was a tournament where you realise the sort of depth of of talent out there in international women's cricket, that was it. And, you know, not just losing the final to the West Indies, but even during the group stage, there was, uh, you know, a few results that showed that Australia can be challenged. I mean, with the nature of this tournament, Australia playing every team once... We should rise to the top and easily make the semi-finals, and then it, it real will come down to those pressure of those knockout days, like we saw in the World T Twenty final where the West Indies upset Australia last year. That's what other teams will hold their hat on when it comes to the semi-final, because there's enough talent in the opposition that if they have a good day, they can beat this Australian side. I don't know about you guys, but I just want to throw something out there before we move on. Maybe this is because I've been living in a bubble, a cricket bubble, but it feels like to me that this Women's World Cup is is a history-making event in the progress of the, the development of the games. What do you guys think? Well, I think like we've touched on, it's probably the strongest in terms of depth. Clearly the eight best teams uh, in the world. Now, the top four qualified automatically. The next four they played in that tournament in the lead-up uh, up against some of the, the I guess, the, the next tier of cricketing nations and, and they were good enough to qualify at this stage and go through and progress to this World Cup. I think with things like the um, the WBBL, for example, I know it's a different format, but what we've seen there is a lot of international girls have come out to Australia and they're playing the best cricketers in the world and I think that's probably just raising um, raising the standard of that, that next group underneath. It's also raising the standard of the next group underneath in terms of Australian girls pushing through. So I don't think as a, as a nation we lose anything with that. But it is definitely the strongest Women's World Cup we've ever seen. Uh, the game's slowly but surely turning more professional. And what about the coverage, though? I mean, there seems to be just more and more coverage of this Women's World Cup. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in, in every medium, um, they're getting more and more coverage, and even just the TV broadcast, I think you're going to see those numbers are going to be significantly higher than they ever have been for a, a Women's World Cup, certainly, in, I mean, around the world and in Australia. People know who, who a lot of these girls are now too, and that, I think, comes back a bit to the WBBL. That, that was fairly well televised over the summer. I think a lot of the Australian players in particular, and, I mean, even last night, looking at that West Indies team, the likes of Stefani Taylor and, and Hayley Matthews. You know, DeAndre Dutton. DeAndre Dutton, there you go. I mean, these are, these are players that we've seen now, and, and they're coming back into our lounge rooms in a different format, which is great to see. It's an exciting time, Menas, for women's cricket, I think, because it's still very much on the upward trajectory and you can see that the standard's improving a lot. You know, the, the pay and I guess the professionalism of the game is still well and truly on the up too. So that's only going to improve the standard. Yeah, I really enjoy watching it. I, I think the the skill levels and the, it is different to men's. It's not a power game. And I really enjoy that as well. I like the nuance of it. You know, a little bit different to the men's game. But in saying that, I mean, the way Bolton and Mooney were smashing them last night, I mean, they were, they were sailing to the pickets. All right, so that was the Women's World Cup. The tournament continues. James is going to be over there writing for the Sydney Morning Herald. Rob, you're not going over, are you? I'm not, no. I'll be, uh, be watching uh, watching at home and reading James's dispatches. Good, good, good. Drinking hot chocolate. Exactly. Um, all right, so let's now move on to something, I guess, a little bit of a downer. And it's the, it's the pay dispute that is going on now between the Australian Cricketers Association and Cricket Australia. And it's really now at a, a hit a critical impasse. ACA have rejected the latest offer from Cricket Australia. Reports today are that uh, the players upset that James Sutherland hasn't stepped in yet. And Ed Cowan on Fox Sports last night said that he thought a deal won't be done in time. So you put all this together and Simon Kadic thinks we're at a crisis point. Are we at a crisis point now? If we aren't now, then we will be very shortly. I think everything points towards a deal. Certainly, you know, a formal deal. I don't think, yeah, obviously won't be done this week. But even temporary measures that can keep the game clicking along, I think they're still a, a fair way off. So that lends itself towards um, becoming a crisis reasonably soon. I mean, I think the, I suppose it's different for the general public and for cricket fans. I think it will rumble along the Australia A Tour. You know, it'll happen with some form of team, most likely, but the point so will come with that. you think that on July 12th, mm. when the Australia A Tour is scheduled to depart to South Africa with many stars, Glenn Maxwell, Usman Khawaja, you think they'll get on the plane if nothing's done? I'm not sure if, I, you know, if nothing's done, I'm sure Glenn Maxwell and Khawaja won't get on the plane. I think, you know, it's just a guessing game at this point. There's so, based on what's happened so far, you'd have to say it's, it's reasonably unlikely. There just hasn't been enough movement to point towards a temporary measure being agreed for those sort of players. But, I mean, the the Bangladesh tour is the the main one. That's when it's going to become... I mean, it's a story that because we're in the middle of football season, it's had bits and pieces and spiked when David Warner and James Sutherland have said bits and pieces. But when... If you, you do send a team to Bangladesh that doesn't have Steve Smith, that doesn't have David Warner, that's when the public are going to say, wow, what what the hell's going on here? I just don't understand who they, who, who they would send. If all the players are united in a union action against the... Cricket Australia, that would what would they go to the grey cricket ranks and start plucking players from first grade teams around the country? Or I guess they might prey on a few young players that could be swayed. Uh, but yeah, I just can't see it happening. One thing I did, we did find out on the last show is that the New South Wales women's side, the Breakers, won't be locked out. Naomi Stallenberg told us they've been told they'll continue to train as normal. So I guess. We're not in true crisis point yet, otherwise there would be a lockout. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there is um, 
Cricket Australia have sort of said that's that's not their intention. They want to keep the players, uh, you know, allow them to keep training. I suppose the issue is insurance things and all those sort of matters, which they will have to work out with the union. But, yeah, it's just a, a very strange situation, isn't it, that you mentioned it's a downer, and that's exactly right. I think most people are sitting here saying, why can't they just work out a solution? Why can't they get in the same room and just work something out where at least, um, if not a formal deal, then a, a short-term, uh, short-term measure that can keep things rolling? What do you think it says, uh, the fact that, that Sutherland hasn't, uh, I guess, properly made himself available yet for negotiations? I mean, he was over there watching the, the Australia-West Indies game last night, I'm pretty sure. Look, I think it says a few things, but one thing that I think it says to me is that Sutherland is obviously trying to remain outside the negotiations, so he's not compromised in his job moving forward. Obviously, he has to maintain a good relationship with the players uh, moving forward, especially the senior players. So I guess he wants to push the negotiation onto someone else that can take the heat. So obviously, Kevin Roberts is the one going around talking to the players and trying to push their case. I guess Sutherland is trying to remove himself for that pro- from that process so that he doesn't get sort of tainted by it. But it's obviously not working. Robert, I'm curious to ask you, is there an element of arrogance here perhaps from CA in these negotiations? That they, they still seem to think that Maybe we don't need to take the ACA side of negotiations that seriously just yet. We'll definitely get them in time, if not for Bangladesh, but for the Ashes. That just seems to be, uh, maybe not the message, but it seems to be what's trickling down at the moment, that maybe they're not quite serious about things. I, don't think, it's, I think it's union busting. Yeah, I actually there's... think it's union busting tactics. I mean, if you were trying to break up a union, this is what you do. Yeah, there's an element of that, certainly. And, you know, you've seen where they've, they've tried to splinter the group a little bit and offering different contracts. And even just their, their main offer is, you know, it's going to have result in the international players being paid a lot more. So if they were acting in self-interest, if someone like David Warner, he, it, it would be in his personal interest to sign the CA offer, and he hasn't. Yeah, I, I think that, I don't know about arrogance, but certainly I don't think the urgency of the situation has been reflected in um, in the way that they've conducted things. Yeah, and just on the on the, the women's side of it too, that they've um, decided to stick by the men on this instead of going for the new deal, which would see them, I think, I mean, that they stand to potentially almost double what, what they currently earn, which could be on average up to nearly $200,000 per year for the women. But they're, like I say, they've opted to stick with the men at this stage. I think the women's cricketers are in the toughest position at the moment because their pay has been and profile and status as cricketers has been improving so much over the last couple of years that they must be happy with the way their game is going. And now for this union negotiation to come in now, it's hard for them. They're sort of caught in the middle, I feel. And we've seen both the ACA and Cricket Australia use the women's game as a marketing tool in these negotiations, which I think has been pretty poor to say mm. the least. Uh, one thing that Peter Layla wrote in The Australian about the pay dispute is that it has widespread ramifications because CA does not have key sponsors for the men's test, ODI and T20 sides and it is understood negotiations are problematic because of the impending lockout. So, look, for the good of the game, this needs to get sorted out and quickly. It is a, a very hard sell to potential sponsors. When they come back at you and say, all right, can you guarantee us Steve Smith, David Warner and co? And what do you say to that? Yeah, exactly. And there was also, Layla went on to write that Nine Network is selling ads for the upcoming Ashes series in Australia. And, you know, they're going to approach sponsors and say, look, it could be Smith and Warner or it could be uh, Buckley and Forsyth opening the batting. (laughs) That would be bad. Oh, I don't know, mate. I reckon, um, what did you used to do, Rob, when you played? 
a little bit of off spin. Oh, very good. So yeah, okay. I would struggle opening the batting, but <laughs> have to give it a go. <laughs> I did a little bit of off spin too, so it's going to be a pop gun attack. <laughs> well, I'm sure they'll go to our first grade cricketers before us. Well, that was the pay dispute. The, their agreement ends June 30th, so we're a few days away from having our country with no formerly employed cricketers apart from the women's team until the end of this tournament. From my experience in negotiations, it always happens at the last minute. So maybe we'll see. And I mean, we saw CA make an offer last week. Maybe there'll be some more offers forthcoming. But you know, keep your fingers crossed. Can I just raise one more point, man? Is uh, Rob? I'm keen to get your thoughts on this too. How much does this taint the public image and the perception of cricket at the moment? Quite a bit, I'd say. I mean, um, talking to uh, a few friends and whatnot, and I think there's. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily understand the reasons behind it and what's actually going on, but just the fact that it's been such a scrap, it's been so public, it's been so almost sort of passive-aggressive that there's just so much heat in it that it does. it is a real bad look for, um, for all parties, I think, and certainly for the sport. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, they say, what do they say, that any publicity is good publicity? And I guess on that side of the coin, they're getting plenty of column inches in amongst state of origin and so forth this time of year the middle of the footy season but i agree with you mate i think um i think people are probably fed up with it especially with the fact that there's no resolution in sight there's there's no appetite i think at the moment among the public to be watching cricket and it'll be interesting to see how that how that develops but when we do come into the summertime i don't know maybe people maybe they'll just be a bit off it maybe it'll take them a bit longer to warm into it this summer it's- no i think we've seen with what happened in major league baseball if there is a strike it will have serious ramifications for the development of the game in this country. We saw the increase and the increase in the Big Bash and the Women's Big Bash. If you want to just cut that off at the head, let's strike at the beginning of summer because I think that'll do it. People buying tickets to the Sixers and all that. I mean, if there's no teams going there, it'll have huge ramifications for this for the game in this country. The timing just could not be worse, could it? I mean, you're in an Ashes year. It's the sort of thing where you almost don't need to market it. You just need to say the Ashes are on and most games will probably sell out. And yet somehow this is cricket's become a um, quite a sad story at the moment, isn't it? And one, other, one other quick point, man, is sorry. Yeah, but, uh, the average Joe on the street that doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of, of what's actually happening and all the fine print and everything like that, I think it sort of taints the perception of some of these senior players too, like a Steve Smith or a David Warner, who have no question been fantastic cricketers for us at Australian level. But they're talking about potentially, if you just want to crack down on some numbers, a million and a half a year to two million a year or something like that. What does the average punter on the street think? Well, I'll tell you, the problem is it's headlines like that that are the problem because Smith and Warner are doing it for the players like Chris Hartley and all these blokes that are under the international level exactly that right. really depend on this income so they're representing the whole cricketing group and people want to cherry pick oh you know warner drives a flash car and smith earns this and he's got that many sponsors that's not the issue no no well said and that's exactly right but unfortunately as the longer this drags through the mud like it is that's uh, that's going to be the perception i think that a lot of people are going to take and that's just another reason why they really need to to get it sorted i think i agree Mm. I agree as well. I mean, if it was cricket season, I think there'd be a greater chance for the ACA to, to break through and, and make that point that 
I suppose, in, in more areas and have more people understanding what exactly this disagreement's about. But at the moment, it's football season. People aren't really tuning into this. They're just knowing that this situation is on and, and they're not really happy about it. Well, they're tuning into this podcast to keep up with it. So, um, well, that's the pay dispute. Now, let's move on to the read and react segment. That's right. Read and react is back. And we have a, a read and react from your Fairfax Media, James. It's not from you. It's from John Pyrrhic. And this is a good one because... We talked in the last show about the Australian squad to Bangladesh that had been announced and Stephen O'Keefe uh, was left out. And this is what John Pirrick has had to write in for Fairfax Media. He understands, this is what Pirrick writes, that O'Keefe questioned Honed as to why Agar, also a left-arm finger spinner, had been given the nod. O'Keefe recited to Hones Agar's career figures where he has 114 first-class wickets at an average of over 40 and 44 in 44 first class matches and two wickets in his two tests at 124 so that's agar's figures then o'keefe's figures to just contrast that he has 244 wickets at just under 24 in 70 first class ma- matches so that's a lot more than agar at a much better average and in his forays in test cricket o'keefe has 33 wickets at 27 in eight tests now apparently o'keefe also sought assurances from Holmes that his off-field indiscretions had not counted against him at the selection table. Holmes confirmed they had not. I mean, great stuff from Pyrrhic there. Um, he also goes on to say that O'Keefe was bewildered and confused and might consider retirement. Any explanations to why O'Keefe was left out then? First and foremost, you cannot argue with, uh, with the statistics there. Steve O'Keefe's been a fantastic Orthodox left arm orthodox bowler for a long time and he's almost in funnily enough in career best form this last summer he was absolutely brilliant I thought you can't um, argue with Pyrrhic's research you can't argue with Pyrrhic's research associates now <laughs> Mr Holmes says that off field indiscretions were not considered at the selection table and I think it's important to point out that there's been a few and perhaps that says something about the character of the bloke he, he misbehaved himself terribly at the uh, New South Wales, the Cricket New South Wales Awards night earlier this year. Uh, he copped a pretty big fine for that and I think personally was lucky to hang on to his state contract. I don't know. I mean, you look at a bloke like Brad Hodge over the years who probably deserved to be in that test team for 10 years, but he wasn't. Is this perhaps, Rob, maybe a case of he doesn't necessarily mix so well with some of his uh, prospective teammates? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, I think he gets on well with a lot of people. He's not alone in that. Turns, you know, when he has a lot to drink, he probably turns into a bit of a different, different person. But I think from afar, it seems like this is unfortunately just his age is counting against him. That selectors have decided, okay, what looking at upcoming tours to the subcontinent, looking at you know the the long term future of the team, and decided that Agar would be you know someone who, if he's not necessarily ready right now, that they can fast track his development and that sort of stuff. I know that's not necessarily what Test cricket should be, but they've just decided that. Yeah, I suppose Agar's the future and they've gone with him. Just I think the... it's bewildering. Mm. I mean, O'Keefe's not that old. He's like 32, 33, so he could potentially... He could certainly go to India in four years. Absolutely. Um, there is some thought that for the Ashes, the opening Ashes, if they sort the pay dispute out, that Australia's looking at playing four quicks with Agar at six as a, an all-rounder who can bowl some spinners. Again, why would you pick a squad to Bangladesh with a look ahead to the Gabba test, which is totally different conditions. Yeah, I mean, I don't like that suggestion, personally, having Agar 
bat at number six. I'm, I'm a big a big believer in just pick a, a specialist batsman at number six. I, I, I don't necessarily think you need an all-rounder in test cricket, but that seems to be, I think, ever since um, Andrew Flintoff destroyed us there in 2005 in the Ashes, we've been trying valiantly to find a, an all-rounder that's capable of doing the same thing. I've always been a big believer in, you know, your top six are, are strong batsmen. You've got a wicketkeeper at seven, you've got four bowlers. I, think maybe, lot, okay. I was just going to say, and maybe one or two of those guys can, can throw down a bit of off-spin or something yeah. like Mark Wall used to do. Well, Hilton Cartwright could potentially do that, who's in this squad. He's a batting all-rounder, with, but he's certainly not a bowling all-rounder. Mm. I was going to say, I think a lot of it's the, the four-pacemen of the apocalypse, as you touched on, that they're just so desperate, this idea of having those four quicks bowling alongside each other in a test attack, which is, you know, obviously a really enticing prospect. And what can they do to sort of shuffle things around to, to make that happen? And I suppose this is, is one solution. Well, I think it's a strange one. And last one is that Mitchell Stark is out of the squad to Bangladesh, which means they haven't announced a replacement. There's a few names that might be uh, possible replacements for Stark. You've got Jason Berendorf. Jackson Bird, Chris Tremaine, Billy Stanlake, Chad Sayers. Who would you guys pick to go over there instead of Stark? Well, that's a pretty good question. Now, thank you. I mean, Jackson Bird's done it before. He's a pretty solid bowler. You look at a bloke like Jason Berendorf, who's been fantastic, I think. The key to him, left I guess, arm is quick. left arm quick, mm. getting his body right. He's had a few injury dramas, but he's got a bit of Nathan Lyon about him in that he's, he steps up to the level he's playing at, and he... I think he could continue to do so. I think he'd do a fantastic job. Uh, I mean, Sayers is the other one that, that definitely uh, probably deserves to be looked at. I don't know about Billy Stanlake. I probably, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't take him to Bangladesh. I'm surprised because Stanlake is the one contracted player. I think among that group, I, don't, I think Bird got a contract, but yeah, Stanlake was the last player to get a contract. His extra pace on those uh, Bangladesh wickets might be effective. Who would you take, Rob? I'd probably go with Berendorf if his if his body's right. Um, like you mentioned, he's a left armour, and I think he's someone that um, even there's a good chance that whoever we're talking about isn't going to play in Bangladesh. But getting that experience and being in the nets and being in the Australian setup for a, a couple of weeks um, before you know who knows what's going to happen this summer. If there's an injury or two, he might um, or whoever it is we're talking about might have to be called up. And the other practical thing with having Berendorf is that we saw without Stark, Lyon really missed those foot marks that Stark used to generate. So if Berendorf is, is in the team, you still have that left arm option to generate the footmarks for Lyon. Mm. Uh, so it's twofold selection. Yeah, and probably that um, South Africa A Tour will play a, a fair, fair part in this, that whoever bowls there and impresses whoever they think is a chance of playing in the Ashes is, is a good chance of getting the call up. Well, if they go to South Africa. So all hinges on this pay dispute. Now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to be back with the headlines in the cricket week with andrew mensel and uh before we do that i just want to remind you all that you can buy the have a go your mug mugs i had someone inquire for a have a go your mug mug for their brother's birthday so i sent it off so if you want one email ozcricketpod at gmail.com and we'll be back with the cricket headlines four from four Picked him up leg side. Those are the winning runs. Shapur is the hero for Afghanistan. Scotland have lost this match, and Afghanistan have won the most historic encounter in Dunedin. It's their first World Cup victory. 
You're listening to the Australian Cricket Podcast, and that was a history-making moment in the annals of Afghanistan cricket history where they beat Scotland in the most recent World Cup and uh, their first ever World Cup victory. And uh, look, I'll be honest with you, listeners, I really almost had Ireland beating England in the World Cup. There's been a lot of English bashing in recent episodes and a lot of pommy bashing, so I just went for a great moment if in Afghanistan's cricket history. I thought you were going to say you were going for a bit of Scotland bashing there for a second. I was going to pull you up, but uh, no, no, they, I they love are, the Scots. They are good I, at an honourable loss at international sporting level, aren't they? They are, but and the, but Ireland beat England uh, what in the T Twenty and the Fifty Over World Cup. So great moments for them, and now both Afghanistan and Ireland have been admitted into the Test playing ranks. Straight off, guys, happy with this decision. Absolutely. This is a, a great uh, great cricket news story, I think. I mean, how many times in you know, the past 10, 15 years have you run into people and they say, why is it so few sides, so few countries play test cricket? Why aren't they doing more to grow to the game, et cetera, et cetera? Um, these are two sides that, uh, as you've touched on, have, have played well, have impressed on the international stage, have impressed it at World Cups and, uh, and whatnot. And I think it's great that there's now that progress and that they can sort of get into test cricket. I mean, it's not going to be – it's going to be a slow progress uh, – um, slow process rather you've seen how Bangladesh only now have started to become more competitive I don't think we can expect them to start start winning a lot of tests and start you know really challenging sides like India Australia and and whatnot you know hopefully that that will come uh, come in time hopefully one of them can beat England soon in the test match <laughs> be something to play on the podcast it's been a rapid rise too for Afghanistan cricket I remember I think about 10 years ago just looking up their place in the cricketing world and I think they were down in about that fifth tier, perhaps of the uh, on the uh, fifty over scene, so they've done incredibly well to to continually improve along the way. And look, I agree with Rob. I think this is fantastic news. You know, eleven and twelve, Afghanistan and Ireland coming into the Test playing scene. And I mean, like we'll see, and we'll probably touch on it in a little while. There's going to be that, I guess, that bottom three tier. But I mean, it's it's good to have a, a bit of a progression, a possible progression. You know, and the fact that say Afghanistan and Ireland and Zimbabwe could potentially continue to improve and then earn their, their opportunity to play some of these higher-ranked nations. I mean, it's only going to be, be good for cricket in those countries. Yeah, I, one of my big cases for Afghanistan and Ireland being admitted was the fact that we still let Zimbabwe and West Indies play test cricket. So if you're going to let two, well, West Indies is not a nation, but two, two cricket nations struggle so much and continue to flounder at international level, then you should at least bring in a couple of uh, teams to go along with them. So one thing I found interesting during the research for this was where Afghanistan took to cricket. And it was apparently during this, the Soviet invasion of the 80s and 90s that a lot of the Afghan population fled Afghanistan into neighbouring countries like Pakistan that do play cricket. And that's where they took up the game. I just thought that was an interesting quirk of history. Uh, I guess the, the challenge for Afghanistan, more so than Ireland, is about infrastructure. And this is what I took from the Australian newspaper. And this is a 24-year-old Kabul resident saying, Afghanistan does not have many cricket grounds that meet international standards and, most importantly, security to host games. It is a shame that we have got test status, but we don't have the infrastructure to match. So we could be looking at a situation where Afghanistan, what test cricket they play, they're going to play in in other UAE like Pakistan does. Yeah, yeah, I think that certainly... You know, everything points towards them playing the, the home test in the UAE and whatnot, and that is a shame, but I suppose a, a reality of the world at the moment. 
Now, something you touched on, James, and I think this is one of the positives to come out of this, is that it looks like we might actually get the ICC to pass their test championship model. Listeners to this show will know that I'm very cynical when it comes to anything coming out of the ICC. So until it actually gets ratified, I will not believe it. So they've let Ireland and Afghanistan in. That does make it possible, as you said, James, to split up the test playing nations into a top nine and a bottom three. Now, they did propose a top seven and a bottom five, but then there was too much anger coming from, say, your lower-ranked top nations like Sri Lanka or West Indies that might have missed out on that top seven group. So they compromised, and they seem to have gone a nine and three model, and it looks like that might happen now. That's fantastic news. And like we discussed, I think, the last time I was on this show, man, is it, it just gives Test cricket a lot more relevance, I think, which is important, particularly uh, under the current landscape where T20 cricket is just taking over the world, essentially. I wonder if, um, you know, maybe after five or ten years or something like that, when some of these lower-ranked Test nations have developed, I wonder if maybe they will then move to the seven and five model. And it just, I mean, it just makes competition for those spots uh, a little bit fiercer, when you've got, say, teams like the West Indies or Sri Lanka or, you know, something like that. There's more that. on the line, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, absolutely yeah. there is. More at stake. And it'll be interesting. I mean, the, as always with these things, the devil will be in the detail. I mean, what what will constitute a series under this sort of championship model? Australia, when they play England, that'll always be five tests. When they play India, that'll always be, you know, at least four tests for obvious reasons. But when they're playing countries like... Um, uh, like Ireland when they're playing West Indies, are they going to be sort of one test series or, or what are we going to see and how do the points count towards? Um... I think it'll be two test series and I think mm. they were talking about the first two tests of every series counting for the rankings and, and doing it like that. So, um, But yeah, look, nine and three is better than no championship. Mm. That's where I stand. I'd rather have something than nothing. Uh, Kevin Peterson during the week. This is what he said: all the Test rivalries. He don't. He doesn't think that many of them will be in existence in the next five to ten years. And I think he is right that if we don't do something to the structure, then we are jeopardising the future of Test cricket. It's not off, not not often I say KP's right about much, but <laughs> he's right about this that we need to do something to invigorate Test cricket. And Ireland and, and Afghanistan are the first step on that ladder. All right, now to a a trophy that is potentially to be scrapped. The Champions Trophy that's just been completed is essentially going to be scrapped. What do you think of that? They're potentially changing it from a 50-over tournament to another World T20. Are you in favour? I actually don't mind the Champions Trophy. I think it just a... I know a lot of people see it as a meaningless tournament, which it is to a certain degree, but it's good that it uh, you know, it gets all the teams together and it's something that's over in, in a couple of weeks as opposed to the, the World Cup, which sort of, I think everyone agrees, drags on a little bit. Um, so I think there's a, an upside to the tournament. If it wasn't for the rain, then um, this, this last edition probably would have been um, even better. Yeah, my problem with the Champions Trophy is, as a tournament, it is good, but I think it takes away from the Cricket World Cup, the 50-over Cricket World Cup, and it adds too much confusion in the marketplace. And, you know, I don't want to see great, good on Pakistan for beating India, but, you know, they run around like they've won the World Cup. Well, they haven't. Australia won the World Cup two years ago. And I just think if you, you clearly have, you know, you have a World T20 every two years, a 50-over World Cup every four years, and then on that one-off year mix in the Test Championship, perhaps that gives you a championship every year and there's not as much confusion. At what stage do you decide that, right, we're going to pull the plug on 50-over cricket and, you know, maybe stop keeping it on life support? I mean, it's obvious that 
T20s the way that it's all going. And you have to think that within the space of oh, huge, you know, a decade you or two. You want to pull the plug on 50 over cricket. Completely pull the plug. You got to, there's Starting still a place. Camp, there's a podcast <laughs> campaign. There's still a place for it. And 50 over cricket. Still a place for it, I think, the World Cup. But like I say, I mean, T20 cricket, within the space of probably a generation, maybe two decades, you'd have to think that it would have almost completely supplanted 50 over cricket, uh, especially if we're going to be doing everything in our power to, to keep test cricket alive. Um, like we've just spoken about, it just, it just it's caught in the middle a little bit. Fifty over cricket, and it just comes back to relevance again. I mean, I'm a bit like Rob. I don't mind the Champions Trophy, and I still enjoy fifty over cricket. But it's not the same as it was, say, twenty years ago or something when it was when it was exciting. And I think that's purely because T20 cricket's come along, and it's just a much more exciting product. It's just so hard with the schedule as well, isn't it? Like how um, you look at Australia's T20 side and generally they'll assemble the best players for the World T20, but apart from that, there'll be sides that are sort of half-strength or they play a lot of kids and that sort of thing because it's either at the end of a a tour or the start of a tour, it overlaps with a a test tour and all that sort of stuff. And I think that, you know, if there was, if if international T20 cricket was going to, become more serious and there is going to be a, a tournament every two years that there'd need to be more of those sort of t20 internationals which i don't know if there's necessarily a uh, an appetite there among the uh, the other boards and, and even the players no i think a, a world t20 championship every two years is a good one to work towards that but to your question about the the 50 over game i think the 50 over game is very strong on the subcontinent the, the problem is there's no overarching concept. There's no league table. There's no World Cup qualification. I uh, just said you've got the Champions Trophy. You've got the World Cup. What they need to do is streamline all three formats and give it a little bit more meaning. And I, I think then you will see the 50-over game grow. And perhaps in, even the next World Cup in, in two years in England, my one takeaway from the Champions Trophy was how good the subcontinental teams did in England. And I can see in 2019 someone like Bangladesh perhaps challenging for the 50-over World Cup. And that would do wonders for the game. Well, maybe that's a way for some of these, these lower-ranked test nations to really announce themselves on the uh, on the cricketing scene. I mean, obviously, it's much easier to, to upset someone in a 50-over game, say for an Afghanistan, for example, to beat a, a team like England or something like that. It's much easier for that to happen in a 50-over game than a test match where you've got five days of cricket you've got to try and match it with them for. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Now, just on that point you make about combining the three formats somehow... The, Not combining, um, streamlining Streamlining them. the three formats. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's another thing to look at even if you look at I mean leave test cricket on, on its own but somehow those 50 overs and the, and the T20 competitions I mean is there a way to potentially interlink the series over the course of a, a four year cycle maybe and yeah, leading to the World at Cup proposing some kind of qualification system for the 50 over World Cup and having that divided up into leagues and then you qualify through that way that, that might be one way of doing it same with the T20 World Championship every two years you could have qualifiers for the the bottom nations, you know, obviously you've got a lot of T20 nations below the top, say six or seven, you can have them playing to qualify for the tournament rather than the games lacking context. Mm. Mm. I think that's the big thing. You don't, you can't see meaningless cricket. There's just too much of it at the moment and fans they want to see, say, Australia go to the UAE and play Pakistan in a five-match ODI series and a three-match T20 series and it just means nothing. There needs to be something there that um, has meaning. Mm. I agree. Right, and the final headline, because no podcast is complete without some Virat Kohli bashing, 
Anil Kumble has quit as Indian cricket coach, and this is what he said, Kumble, I was informed for the first time yesterday by the BCCI that the captain, Virat Kohli, had reservations with my style and about my continuing as head coach. And this is a really interesting one because Kumble is universally regarded as a top bloke and Kohli isn't. So I just think maybe uh, Kohli's got this one wrong. Well, you might be right. I mean, it's it's a case of uh, personalities clashing, I guess, which we've seen many times, especially in cricket, I think, over the past uh, 10 or 20, maybe even longer than that, really. Uh, sometimes the captain of a team and the player power seems to usurp the coach. I mean, we see that in English football quite a bit. Uh, it's happening now again in cricket. It's interesting that Coley apparently deleted his old tweet welcoming Kumble as a head coach of the Indian cricket team. And an even bigger news, apparently Coley unfollowed Kumble on Twitter, which is like, that's like taking someone off your speed dial now. Wow. But this is what Coley tweeted when Coley, when Kumble was given the job. Hardiest welcome to Anil Kumble. Look forward to your tenure with us. Great things in store for Indian cricket with you. Uh, one thing I want to add to all this is I think we've seen Virat Kohli fray throughout the whole summer, the long Indian summer, and then through the Champions Trophy. His form with the bat has dipped. Now he's got the coach sacked. He had the, the outbursts against Smith in the press. And we're seeing Virat Kohli fall apart a little bit here. Clearly he has just an incredible amount of power, just if anyone was wondering whether that was the case or not, for, for him to be able to do this. I mean, uh, Kumbhla, I'm sure that, you know, he's can be a fiery character as well. I'm sure that it's, whether it's a an ego sort of issue or something's gone on. It's with definitely it an ego issue. Well. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Uh, but there's a disagreement that's happened somewhere. and But, I mean, that happens around the world. I'm, I'm quite sure that Steve Smith and Darren Lehman have had, you know, real heated discussions at different points about fill things. fill us in on some of those? None that I've, I've seen or heard. But, um, Come on, you know, they're able to. Come on, you know. They're able to, to sort these things out, you know, behind closed doors and, and agree to disagree. Come on, on Smitty, stay time. out for a drink. No, Darren, I'm going to bed. Come on, one more beer. No, boof. That's it. I don't drink. You know that. But it's just uh, so weird, isn't it? That uh, I mean, a coach who's so successful and the team's been doing so well that you just punt him like that. And I suppose the next question is who comes in and who in their right mind would want to head into that environment? And, and so try one to name charge. floated is Tom Moody. Do you think he could uh, step into the breach? Do you think he's got? He's certainly got the skills as a coach, but does he have the personality to deal with what goes with being Indian cricket coach? He could possibly. I mean, he's had. Um, Spent a lot of time in India with the IPL, and I think that certainly helps having that that background and knowing how different things work and knowing about different relationships and whatnot. I wonder so, if Greg Chappell is going to reapply. <laughs> Less likely. <laughs> one one other interesting thing is to speculate other coaches around the world that might have applied for it. You know, one might be Mickey Arthur, who's done so well with the Pakistan side. I mean, there'd be a certain pay increase if you were to coach the Indian side. So maybe one. Mickey Arthur could have just sent his CV in there. I don't know. Is that is that a bit like going from Aston Villa to Birmingham or uh, Man United to Man City or something? Our like English that? listeners will get that. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. He wouldn't fly direct from Pakistan to India. I think there would be a country in between. So that was all the headlines in the Cricket Week, Andrew Mensel's headlines. Now we're going to be back with our final segment of the week, which is can't let it go but before we do that i just want to let you know about the have a go your mug promotion if you can go on to itunes or whatever app you listen to the show on and leave a review for the show 
and you will go in the draw for have a go your mug mug and the, the new rules are once you leave a review you go in the mug and you stay there so i've still got two entrants from last week steve and mike who i'm going to ask james to see who won the have a go your mug mug all righty manners we have a winner steve ah oh, quality sorry, by sub three steve high caliber of content great discussion quality panel Helps me to stay in touch with the detail in my busy life. Great review, Steve. Like, deserving winner. Thank you, Steve. Send us in a uh, app, uh, your address and I'll send you out the mug. Unlucky Mike from Boston. Mike sent me a message after the last show that Naomi Stallenberg might be good at cricket but not so good at drawing out his <laughs> review. So hopefully you'll get the next one. Look, there's only one left now. So unless we get some entries in the next week, Mike is the, the only one for the next show. You are global, aren't you, Minister? We are global. Oh. Uh, now, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, we're on Gmail. Oz Cricket Pod, that's A U S Cricket Pod at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Oz Cricket Pod. You can find us on Instagram at Oz Cricket Pod. I won't be putting Facebooks up of my uh, pictures up of my panelists, don't worry. Uh, you can listen to the show on Podomatic, Stitcher, iTunes, and yeah, tell all your cricket loving friends about the Australian Cricket Podcast. Good heads for podcast in this room, eh? <laughs> <laughs> him. Well, he never really looked like getting going out there. Brayshaw comprehensively cleaned up. And so South Australia now are in a fair bit of trouble. Three for 57. Welcome back to the final segment of the Australian Cricket Podcast. I've got Rob Forsyth, cricket writer for AAP, and James Buckley from Sydney Morning Herald here and that was James Brayshaw being cleaned up in a Shield match I want to remind you all that he actually was a cricketer uh, and just I, I just put that in because the commentary critique segment is coming back it's taking a break but I think the next show I'm going to throw in a commentary critique so if any of you have any commentators you want us to assess please send in emails and we will give them our best or worst ratings I guess in news about the commentary uh, world Henry Blofeld, respected English commentator, has announced he's retiring at, I think, the end of September from Test Match Special. Initial feeling when you heard the news? Oh, genuinely sad. I mean, what an icon Why? of cricket commentary. I reckon he's absolutely... <laughs> oh, he's, he's 50 years, I think, or something now. Almost Blowers. 50 years, yeah. I mean, and he's just... You could listen to him for hours. You could dead set just listen to him for hours and not even worry about what's happening on the field. He's just got such a magnificent voice and a very articulate voice and he's just fantastic the way he describes a game of cricket is brilliant so um yeah it'd be a shame uh, shame not to have his dulcet tones on the radio after september he's a very unique character and a unique voice in cricket just the, his delivery his expressions you know he's he, he sort of is the symbol of old england almost that sort of old uh, english cricket culture oh, oh boy you know all this stuff but you know it's certainly a lot of affection around the cricket world all right, so I'm going to end this show with the Can't Let It Go segment. And let's start with James. James, what can't you let go from the world of cricket in the last week? All right, mate. Sorry to keep bringing AFL into your segment, but they're uh, tightly linked here. Now, you would have seen on Actually, the Actually, it's an interesting point you bring up. And regular listeners to the show will know that I have always tried to keep any other sports talk out. And, the, you know, letting more professional journos in who think about more than just cricket, it's hard to have that happen. The editing's come become a bit tough. So anyone out there, I try, but it's hard. Bales does it. Your man Bales from AP. Little... 
He's doing his best, listeners. Like but, Macca uh, for the for, James McSmith for the, for the first like ten episodes, the Roosters won the I, the NRL, and I kept editing out him mentioning <laughs> it. So anyway, sorry, Bucky, go That's on. That's a good half hour per show that you're editing Bring, out there. Look, um, you, you would have seen on the weekend a young Melbourne Demons uh, play very very talented footballer Clayton this, Oliver was his name. This is great. Uh, Twitter spat. <laughs> he went. Uh, he copped a, a bit of a love tap in the game against West Coast, and he went down like he'd been shot. It was a bit of a delayed reaction, and it was almost it was like slow a dive motion. when you see a, football, a soccer player uh, yeah. have a tiny touch and they fall over like they've been shot or something. It was a bit like that, and um, he realised immediately how ridiculous he looked. I think Damien Martins uh, hit him up on Twitter and uh, had a go at him and said that you know it's, it's pretty ordinary to be diving like that. And fair play to Clayton Oliver in a way. He's already changed his Twitter profile picture to a screenshot of him. Uh, pretending to fall over and he's fired back at Damien Martin uh, and sent him a, a little link a little YouTube reminder of uh, a shot that he played I think it was about 25 years ago now against South Africa I think the tweet was something like don't worry about me you should be worrying, worrying about the shot, <laughs> shot you played 25 years ago at the SCG which uh, I will say was about three years before Clayton Oliver was actually born but we all remember it. I mean, Australia were chasing. I was there. Uh, oh, was you were there. The rounds, okay. Yeah. Well, they only needed another eight or nine to win. I think he was batting with uh, Craig McDermott, who was uh, doing his best at the other end, and then uh, Damian Martin t- tried to loft one over cover. I think uh, didn't quite work, and that was the end of it. Australia lost the game. Uh, so this this sort of comes back to a little bit of uh, this this idea of you know social media warring and everything which Twitter is a spat it's it's ringing its head a little bit um and there was great there was one a couple of weeks ago another demons player thomas bug they they played the western bulldogs and uh they they sort of called jason Johannes and out pretty much with a little post on instagram saying are you ready and then they proceeded to target him for the next four quarters and the demons flogged the bulldogs so uh, this That's too this, much oh, AFL this whole social media That's cross the line. This That's whole social media bad, spat stuff though. I mean personally I love it. You know I'll leave it in as a bad example. <laughs> there's so much um I guess hosing down of, of this character and personality yeah, so I, in the, the game. The AFL one where the players did that sort of pre match Instagram photo, I thought it was great because I think well, can't you have a bit of personality now? Yeah. You know, you're not as long as you don't say something offensive or call someone a, a dickhead or something, you know? Yeah. Why and not? As long as you go the, out and back it up. With the Martin one, and this is what I have a problem with the Damien Martin one. I think he, he copped a bad rap for that shop for a long time. And I think to bring something back from twenty five years ago and say, Oh, you played a shot a bad shot, not a really good comeback. And uh, earlier that day, that day Martin was batting, in the first over of the day, Alan Border shouldered arms to Alan Donald and got bowled. Now, Border doesn't cop the same criticism that Martin does, but I would suggest it was a, just as bad a shot, shouldering arm to a ball on off stump. So I just think Martin copped it a bit unfairly there. And if you are going to target Damien Martin for something, target him for retiring mid-series in an Ashes and running out on his team, not on playing a bad cover drive. Do we think, is Clayton Oliver one of the world's great cricket fans, given, as you mentioned, he wasn't alive when this happened, or has he just done a bit of quick research after seeing that Martin's had a go at him? He's had a shocker, that's all. I'm Clayton Oliver, he's, he's compounded his dive with some bad tweeting. Mm. I think that. Now, uh, Rob, what can't you let go of from the cricket week? Um... I can't let something go. It's it's a little bit older than the uh, the past week, so I apologise for that. But it's clear no, just good. how much I'm holding on to it. Uh, it was the run out in um, in South Africa's big loss in the Champions Trophy between uh, Faf and, and David Miller, where they both ended up at the same end. 
you know, it's not an excuse to bag South Africa losing a knockout game, but more so just cricket being a great leveller. I mean, that happens at fourth grade. That happens in park cricket. That what happens. about in the the Champions Trophy final where Jadeja and Pandya ended up at one end? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pandya was like, okay, run, because yeah. I'm, I've just hit seven sixes and you're certainly not going to win the game. And Jadeja just stood there looking at him, didn't leave his crease. No, wanted so to stay it's there. like a few blokes I used to bat with, one well, James McSmith. They happen. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. They even happen to remember, um, I can't remember uh, which, te- I think it might have been the Boxing Day home test when Kadic and uh, Watto ended up at the same end of the crease and they needed the uh, the third umpire to come along. That was when Watto was almost near his he first near test tongue. entry. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Great one, great can't let it go. I've got two can't let it goes from this week. The first one is sort of, Highlight something I talked about in the last show was sort of underlying sexism when male journalists talk to female cricketers. And this is what happened in the Women's World Cup. You have to watch that when you're over there, Buckers. Underlying sexism. <laughs> A journalist asked Indian cricketer Matali Raj who her favourite male cricketer was. And she turned to the journalist and said, would you ask a male cricketer who their favourite female cricketer is? And whilst I don't think the journalist was actually trying being sexist i don't think he knew what he was saying it does it's a sort of underlying condescension that some journalists put on the women's game have you seen that around a little it's a bit of a dumb question isn't it like and good on her for calling it out i think more of that should happen if um you know both of us have asked plenty of dumb questions and mm. i'd be happy for, for players to call us out when we ask them yeah yeah calling it out for being a dumb question not for being a, a sexist question i mean <laughs> i don't necessarily think that's a sexist question but what, what's question. he what's he achieving by asking that now, my final can't let it go. I had two, mm. had Matali Raj, and now I don't know if anyone saw, and it was on, it was all over the internet, but there was a cow that entered a cricket field in England. And look, it was great. He charged one of the fielders. But what I found amazing, and it just sort of says about what this English umpire was like, he was just standing there in his position as umpire, and obviously he's so fixated on his job and getting the decision right the bull or the cow was charging at him and he didn't move. I'm like, okay, I'm sure you can move from your umpire's position now while you're being attacked by a, a cow or bull. So it took him to getting like staked before he left his post. How the hell has a cow managed to find its way onto a cricket field? Well, it's just an open field. It's obviously got out and, and ah, right, run on. Okay, and it, okay. It, so, it, this, so this wasn't high-level cricket. No, it was like, <laughs> and it charged the field, it charged the umpire, and then the, after the umpire almost got killed because he wouldn't move, they all left the field and waited till the cow left the ground. Just another highlight for the uh, the highlight reel of animals and insects yeah, interrupting the, cricket matches. Did, we've seen did, bees, someone, we've seen a squirrel. Didn't we see a, a pig like with the name Botham on it released on a cricket ground back in the eighties? Something like that rings a bell. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, guys, I guess uh, we'll end the podcast now. We've done. Can't let it go. We've been through all the news. I just guess quickly. What's uh, James? You're heading over to England. Good luck over there. Thank you very much. Hoping mate. to give you a call and get an update from England. Any so. time, mate. And Rob, what are you up to? Covering the uh, the Sydney Swans mostly. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, right. no, it'll be. I'm sure that pay dispute will drag on for a little bit longer. So um, hopefully it doesn't. Uh, it'd be great to see it over this week, but I can't see that happening. Well, listeners, thank you so much for downloading the show, James, Rob. Thanks so much for coming in. Both your second appearances. So great to have you back, and uh, we'll be back next week with another podcast. Thanks, Menace. Cheers, mate. Stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.